0: Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into Scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big-girl pants, because here we go. So, last week, we talked about the beauty of 1 Samuel chapter 18, where Jonathan and David form this beautiful covenant. When uh, Jonathan hears David speak, it says that his soul was knit to David's. In other words, he realized, listen, we are cut from the same cloth and it was a bond of best friendship like no other. And so we see that here we were talking about the story about how Jonathan took off his armor and his robe and his weaponry and literally put them on David forming this covenant. At the end of the night, I told you to do some homework, which I don't know if you remembered to do, but you were supposed to read Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15 is where God makes a covenant with Abraham. And he's saying to Abraham, listen, I'm going to make you into a nation. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. All nations will be blessed through you. I'm going to give your descendants this land. So it's the promise of the Redeemer, Jesus, coming through the nation of Abraham. And Abraham had asked the question, but Lord, how will I know this? And so God tells him exactly what to do. He gives him some instructions. He tells him to go get certain animals, to cut them in two, and to set them opposite of each other. It would have created a blood path. And so God comes down in the form of a smoking um, pot, a flaming torch, and he literally passes through the pieces, cutting a covenant. Basically what he is saying is death be to me if I don't uphold this covenant. So anytime you see a covenant in scripture, it is being cut and there will always be signs, there will always be a sacrifice and there will always be a promise. And so when we look at this, So, for example, in Genesis chapter 15, the signs were the smoking oven or the the fire pot and the torch. Okay? He's promising Abraham about a generation who 400 years later is going to be put into bondage and then freed and eventually given this land. So the signs of the smoking pots remind you of when they were in bondage in Egypt and they were using the smoking pots to make brick. And it also reminds you the flaming torch of the pillar of fire leading them through the desert. So those objects symbolized God, okay? So the signs were that. The sacrifice was actually, you know, the animals that had been cut into two, and the oath in that case was all of what he had promised him about his nation. When you look at the covenant in chapter 18, it can be a little bit harder to find, okay? So obviously the signs are easy, what is the symbol or what is symbolically, what are we seeing about the covenant? What are signs? It represents something. How about the royal robe, the armor, and the weapons? Okay, that is representing Jonathan's kingship or future kingship. It's his status, okay? So you have these signs representing that. But what is the sacrifice? That's a little harder. If you look at 1 Samuel twenty thirteen. It'll give you a little bit of a hint. Take a look at that real quick. Or actually no, 1 Samuel 20 30 through 31. What is it? Well, you're close. What she said the giving up the relationship between Saul and Jonathan. Why would the relationship um, even be up for grabs because the point is what did Saul want for Jonathan? He wanted him to be what? King. He wanted his son to be the king so in this covenant with jonathan and saul i mean with jonathan and david who is actually the sacrifice jonathan jonathan is saying i am the sacrifice i am giving of my life for you and so the signs are the status of of his future as a king but he himself is the sacrifice And then the oath is in 1 Samuel 20, 13, where he basically says, listen, whatever it takes to save you, I will, I will put my life on the line for you, David. I actually pledge my allegiance to you. And you have this beautiful picture of covenant to where he literally gives up what is rightfully his to become vulnerable. He is saying, I will remove my status, my position, and give it to you. I will become defenseless in your presence. And what was the motivation behind it? Love. Absolutely. What was the motivation behind the covenant in um, Genesis chapter 15? Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 9 tells us, why did God pick the nation of Israel? He loved them. That's it. He loved him. If you read 1 John 4.10, what motivated God's love for us? I mean, what motivated his covenant for us? His love for us. And do you not see the picture of that covenant? He literally was the king of kings. He literally takes off his right as the creator of the universe to become man, to be the sacrifice. That is what he did for us Jesus himself demonstrated his love for us by offering himself. He came down and became the sacrifice. He removed his royal robes and became a man. He became vulnerable and defenseless before us. His oath was if we acknowledge him as the son of God, we will be saved. Same deal, covenant, all through the scriptures. But what I think is really interesting too is that Jonathan, this is the most beautiful picture of friendship. Friendship is the removing of an image and being what with one another? Vulnerable. Listen to this article. I love it. It says, we don't spend very much time thinking about the nature of true friendship. In our social media dominated age, we are so image conscious that we think more about the impression that we make than we do about making genuine friends. If you are not careful, you will carefully craft an image using social media and not allow people to get too close because it would ruin the image. Then you build your identity on the number of people who are impressed by you and who respond to the image that you have created. You have an important choice to make. You can impress people or you can have genuine friends. When we develop real friendships, our friends will know that we are not that impressive. That's my favorite part of the whole article right there. When you develop true friends, your friends will know that you are not that impressive. They will see the rough edges and the ugliest things about us, but we will be known and we will be loved. That is the beauty of true friendship it sees the ugly and it stays. The truth is this unless you are fully known, are you really fully loved? And that is the beauty of Jesus. That is why I love Psalms 139 that says, I knew you in your mother's womb. I knit you together. I know everything about you. I know when you stand up, when you sit down, there is not one single thing I do not know about you. Why do I love that? Because I know if all of that is true, that God's love is absolutely realistic. I don't ever have to worry about him discovering some negative quality about me or some skeleton in my closet and changing his mind. He knows every single thing about me, everything I've done and everything I will do, and he loves me anyway. And that is the beauty of true friendship. They see the ugly and they stay In verse 5, as we continue, it says, And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over the men of war, set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servant. So we're back in chapter 18, verse 5. So Saul keeps sending David to war. And everything he does is what? Successful. The servants love him. The soldiers love him. The population loves him. Everything he does is successful. And let me tell you, up to this point, I do believe Saul has been dealing with envy. Okay, let me tell you the difference. Envy is a painful and resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another person joined with the desire to possess that same advantage. So you see someone that has something you want and you want it. Okay, that's envy. It tends to be pretty secret, pretty personal. But the difference between envy and jealousy, envy is when someone has something you want. Jealousy is when you feel like someone is trying to take something you have. All right? One deals with two people, you and the one you're envious about. But the other one typically involves a third party that has been put into play. So We're going to talk about this even more, but tell me this. What do you think Saul is envious of? What are some of the things you think he's envious of? What? Everybody loves him. So he's envious of his popularity. Uh, He's envious of his stinking courage. He just killed Goliath not too long ago. He's envious that everything he does, he's successful. Do you not think he sees that the power of God is with David? And he is envious of that because he understands that, and now he sees it in David. Do you think he could be envious of his youth? Oh, I remember when I had that much passion. I remember those days. You know, it's easy to have courage as a young man. You don't have a whole lot to lose. Wait till you have everybody depending on you. Wait till you have a kingdom depending on you. And you look and he sees all of this, that possibly some of the things that he had had and experienced in his youth. And inside, he is envious. By the way, envy does not always have to be a bad thing. Sometimes it, we see what other people have and it motivates us to what? Work, right? It motivates us if that is the life we want and these are the things we would like to have, then how do you go about getting it? J-O-B. Right? So you work for it. It doesn't always have to be um, a negative thing. It could actually be good. But then all of a sudden, his envy turned into what? What's the title of verse 6? Above verse 6 in your Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 18. What's the title of that section? Saul's Growing Fear? What version do you have? And I mean Saul's jealousy. So now we're moving from envy to To jealousy. So it says this As they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Okay. Now we have a whole nother party coming in. Okay. And listen, when you come walking out and women are singing in the streets, okay, you are popular. You're being praised. But when it's the number one hit, you are some serious popular. This was the number one hit in Israel right now that everyone is singing that David has killed his tens of thousands. The beautiful thing about David here is he does not, um, he doesn't believe his own press. You do not see him get puffed up, which we've already seen him be criticized, have we not? When he went to kill Goliath and his older brother says, what what are you little punk doing here? And where'd you leave your stinky little sheep? You just came down here to get something started because you just want to watch this fight, right? And he criticized him. And David did not let criticism derail him because he knew his why and he just kept moving. But you know what? Sometimes you think criticism Or um, a battle is your test? How about prosperity, popularity, and praise? Do you not think that sometimes those are actually bigger tests? Because I'm going to tell you prosperity and praise and popularity, those can be huge, huge traps. And we see that he did not fall for either. He did not get puffed up when he was praised. And he also did not get derailed when he was criticized. What does that say? He's pretty solid in who he is. In our world today, we would say he's pretty comfortable in his own skin. He doesn't get pulled either way, but not Saul. All right, Saul is a different story. It says in verse eight, and Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, And to me, they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. We've talked about that before. And he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was very angry. That word is charah, and it literally means to burn within. Some of your uh, translations may say that he prophesied. Does anybody see that? Okay, don't look at that as spiritual. What that means is he is ranting. Okay, he is enraged and he is basically exploding. He's just lost it. He's like, I don't know who that he thinks he is, and that uh, the only thing he can have now is my kingdom. And see, what has happened is you have brought in this element of um, humiliation. That is what is happening. Listen, anytime we have anger, by the way, anger is typically not the problem. If someone is raging, more than likely it is because some massive fear has just been hit. And so if you are raging like that, you need to start asking yourself some questions, backtracking, why? Why am I responding like this? What is going on inside of me? Because the bottom line is nobody can make you feel any certain way, but they can reveal things in you that bring out emotion. Okay, why is this striking me so much? Why am I reacting? Do you realize there is something called the cycle of rage? I thought this was so interesting. This is what it looks like. There's usually a triggering event. Some event happens, okay? Someone cuts you off, or whatever it is, something has triggered you. The very next thing is you immediately start having negative thoughts. That person does not give one iota about anybody else on this street. How selfish that you, I mean, Really? Do you know this person? No. But all of a sudden you start having all of these negative thoughts. When you have the negative thoughts, what then starts to happen in your emotion? Your emotions start building up to be what your thoughts are saying. You literally can feel your heart race or your chest tightening. You can seriously feel the anger coming. And then, yeah, so you have emotion, you have physical symptoms, and then guess what you do? You have an action. You act out of all of that. Think about the last time you exploded. Was there an event that triggered you? Immediately from the event, what did you start to do? You started having negative thoughts, questioning why this, why that, they did this, kind of like Eliab did with David, questioning the heart, what's going on. The more you think about it, what starts to happen? When you let your thoughts go, what happens in your body? You start to have emotions, and emotions bring a physical response. And once you get to that place, you're at the place where very often we act out of that emotional response. It is called a trigger. It is um, a cycle of rage. The problem is now he has been humiliated. So let me give you an example, Cain and Abel. Okay. Cain brings his offering to God. It's all the works of his hand. And I truly believe he brought God the best. I I don't buy into the teaching of Cain and Abel like Cain gave his leftovers. Because I don't think you put your leftovers on an altar and you're surprised when they're rejected. I think when you put a giant, beautiful spread of everything you've worked to grow and you put it up on the altar and you feel like you gave this beautiful thing and then it's rejected, you're mad. The problem is he brought his good works and put it on the altar and Abel brought the blood of the innocent sacrifice. And the bottom line is this, God had said to Cain, listen, Cain, you know what is right. If you do it, won't you be accepted? Simple as that. I'm giving you a do-over. It's a freebie. Dude, just get it right. He would not do it. He says, why are you angry? Let me tell you why he's angry. Because already after sin, already with the first generation, we have immediately begun to feel shame because when envy, when shame is added to envy, it can become jealousy and it can become violence. Because all of a sudden, Cain was no longer looking at what he did as just an act. He looked at that as who he was. And so when he looked at it, to him, God was not just rejecting his offering. God was rejecting who? Him. And if he was rejecting him, he was accepting who? Abel. And he was humiliated. And so what he did is instead of humbling himself and realizing, no, I just need to get right before the Lord. He looked over and feeling that shame, envy turned into jealousy. If I'm not accepted and you are, I will get rid of my competition. Boom. That's exactly what is happening here with David, with Saul, with David. He's had envy. Oh, he's had envy for David. But now You've added that third party. He has been humiliated, and he feels what? He feels rejected. Let me ask you something. Are they rejecting him in that song? They're celebrating both of them. They're saying Saul has killed his thousands, but David what? His tens of thousands. And so it is how he feels about himself and his humiliation And he is allowing envy to turn into jealousy. And now he wants to get rid of his competition. And so he is raging inside. um, And he hurls the spear, which I think the next verse is hilarious, considering that. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Do you not find that funny? what just happened? Who just threw the spear? Saul. Well, let me ask you this. In this scene, who should be afraid? David. But yet it says, who's afraid? Saul. So this massive fear inside of him that has turned into rage has caused him to project his feeling what? Onto David right? Actually, Saul is the one who is afraid. How many times have we heard in this uh, study, hurting people, what? Hurt Hurt people. That's what they do. A lot of times, and we have to be careful with ourselves because what happens is things are going on inside of us. And when there's a trigger, instead of looking internally and finding out what is going on in us, the first thing we do is grab a spear and do what? Project that onto that other person. And that is what is happening here. Saul is in so much pain that he is lashing out at the ones who are closest to him and the ones who are actually trying to help him. Think about that. It's David that is playing the music to get Saul to quit freaking out, to calm down. But how many times do we do that? How many times do we lash out at the ones who are the closest to us? Why? Because they're bad always or because they've pricked something in us. Maybe that's going on. There's a trigger and we respond and we lash out at the ones that are the closest. It said that David evaded him twice. That makes me laugh. Fool me once. Okay. Fool me twice. Yeah. No, he'd have thrown that spirit. Me one time. I wouldn't have sat back down. I'd be like, you're on your own, dude. I'm not playing the liar for you today. No, no right? But he sat down twice. That shows you the courage and the love of David. Verse 13 says, so Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. Listen, when you are this, I don't know if you've ever had someone that pushes every button you have. And you know, you know, they're not bad people, but there's just something about them. That pushes your button. And so what do you typically do with that person? Distance. You're like, I got to have distance from this person because they bring out something in me I do not like. And I can't even put my darn finger on it because really they're not mean. Everybody else loves them. They're nice, but there's just something. They trigger something in me. Am I the only one that's crazy like that? And then all of a sudden you just realize the best thing is just... Let's create some distance. So David, I'm going to send you off to war. He's probably hoping though what? That he won't come back. But it says, and David had success in all of his undertakings for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David for he went out and came in before them. Oh man, he kept sending him out to battle. And all, what is the repetitive word in that, area, in that section? Success, success, success. And because of that, he was in fearful awe. That word success in the Hebrew is sakal. And this is what it means. It literally means, let me give you a couple of Proverbs you can read later. Proverbs 10, 19 uses it. And Proverbs twenty one eleven uses it for success. Okay. Um, proverbs 10, 19 when words are many transgression, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. It also means success. Okay. And then Proverbs twenty one eleven says, when a scoffer is punished, the simple becomes wise. When a wise man is instructed, that means successful. He gains knowledge. So bottom line, this word success for David means he knew when to speak and he knew when to keep his mouth shut. That's a good trait for a young man. Okay. And it also meant he was teachable. Can you imagine how much Saul, David just, I mean, he just drove Saul nuts because no matter what he did, he was just a fine young man. He was successful. He had courage. The power of God was on him. He walked in a room and it lit up. He could talk to anybody. He could keep a confidence. He knew when to speak. He knew when not to. He gained instruction. He would sit and listen. And yet Saul wanted so bad to hate him. And every time he was successful, I think Saul was just enraged. And so at this point, it said that Saul looked at him and what? At that moment, they were enemies. He's like, what else can he take but my kingdom? And he looked at him. At that point, he from that moment on, life began to change for David. And, and we're going to go quickly, but what you're going to see in the next few chapters is that God begins to strip away All of the crutches or the comforts of David. Now, this does not seem hardly fair, does it? Did he deserve it? No. But if you're going to be king, where do you learn the most? In suffering. In solitude. And so I truly believe, and I'm going to say this several times, I think David became a man after God's own heart in the shepherd's field, but I think he became a king in the wilderness. And so you're gonna see that starting here that he's going to begin to strip stuff away. It begins with his wife. Saul had given his daughter Michael to David as a wife. And by the way, even that he tried to trick him. Because he's like, if you really want to marry Michael, um, oh, I'm so glad to have you in the family, son. Um, I know you don't have much to offer. That's okay, because, man, we just really love you. The only thing I really need is 100 foreskins from the Philistines. Well, that's quite the thing to ask, right? So that means if you're going to bring a foreskin, the body better be dead. And so basically he's saying, I want you to kill 100 Philistines, and I want you to bring me their foreskin as proof. I would not want to open that box when he got there. But let me tell you, he didn't talk about overachiever, He didn't just kill 100. How many did he kill? 200. He went over and above. How mad do you think that made Saul? That he came back because he thought, oh, if he goes out and tries to do this, he's going to die. This is the way I'm going to get rid of him. It didn't work. It backfired. He came back with double the portion because he's such an overachiever. And so it it infuriated, how do you say that? Infuriated Um, Saul so much that he was determined to kill David. So he sent soldiers to the house. Well, Michael finds out about it. And so she stuffs the stuff in the bed to look like David and she lets David out the window and um, he he gets to flee. And Saul thought for sure the daughter would be on his side, not so much. And so now David flees. So the first thing we see is he's having to run for his life He has now basically lost his home, and he has lost his wife. When he runs, let me ask you this. Who do you think he would run to? Okay, so Jonathan warns David. He talks his father off the ledge. Uh, David once again plays for Saul. He's like, dude, your dad's trying to kill me. No, he's really not. Yeah, he really is. No, it's good. I've talked to him. I've talked him off the ledge. And then um, he flees. Then he goes to Samuel. Okay, Samuel is his mentor, the one who anointed him as king. He goes to a place uh, where Samuel is, um, Ramah. And if you could see that place, it is building on top of building on a mountain. And so it is the perfect place to disappear. Funniest story ever in this chapter because Saul finds out he's in Ramah with Samuel so he sends soldiers to go get him anytime the soldiers come into the city of the prophets they start to prophesy so do you understand what I'm saying they're coming they're going to take David they're going to take him back to Saul to be killed they walk into the city to a worship service and they start singing uh, you know sing a hallelujah Right, I mean, can you imagine? They walk in, and all of a sudden they start worshiping, they start prophesying, they're removing their garment, their soldier garment, and they're being what and and they just have this whole experience. They go back, and and Saul goes, Where is David? Dude, I don't know what to tell you. I went to Ramah, and when I went in there, something happened to me. It's an experience I can't even explain. Like I started to prophesy. We had a worship service. Sorry, I don't have David. This happened three times. He sent different soldiers to this place. And every time when they went in there, the spirit of the Lord came upon them and they had a worship service and they went back without David. So Saul says, well, if you're going to do something right, then what? Do it yourself. So Saul goes and he goes to Ramah. And when he comes in, what do you think happens to him? The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him and it says that he removes his outer garments. Literally, he removes his status, humbles himself, and he has a worship service. And in the process, does not get David, and David has to flee from Ramah. So David has lost his home, he has lost his wife, he has lost his mentor. Now he goes back to Jonathan, and now they have some heated words. And this is actually beautiful. Because listen, that tells you right there that two people that love each other and are in covenant can have somewhat Heated words. Do you always see the, the same side of the story? No. And you can sit there all day long and say, no, this is how it is. No, this is how it was. No, he would never do that. Yes, he would. Your dad is trying to kill me, dude. No, he told me he wasn't. Well, I don't care what he told you. He threw a spear at me. His soldiers came to get me and your sister let me out the window. Do you understand that he sent soldiers to Ramah to kill me and instead he came himself, dude. I ran away. There's no way. My father would not do that without telling me. I would know what is going on. And it's heated because David is stressed. He is running for his life. Here's my favorite part of it all. Jonathan says this. He says, whatever you say, I will do it for you. At the end of the day, that is the most beautiful thing. They do not see eye to eye. Jonathan does not agree with David. He does not think his dad is going to do this. But who does he care about the most? David. And so he looks at him, and he puts the dance away, the who's right, who's wrong dance, and he says to his covenant friend, what do you need? What do you need? Tell me what you need and I will do it. Why? Because you are the most important to me. So you tell me, what is it? You say the word and I will do it. So they came up with a plan. Do you remember this plan? Have you read ahead? Okay. So he would go back, they were having a festival and all of the leadership the royal family should have been at the table for the festival but david was not going to be there and jonathan was going to tell his dad oh david well i sent him off to his family because something's going on there and he needed to go celebrate with him and he said if he reacts like a lunatic i'm gonna know that he wants to kill you that's exactly what happened they had devised a plan where jonathan would shoot an arrow into a field, and depending on what Jonathan said to the young boy that went to get the arrow, David would know if it was time to stay or time to flee. And this part actually breaks your heart because the fact is Saul was going to kill David. Jonathan was wrong. and But Jonathan stayed true to his commitment to David, and when they finally send the boy away and they're standing there together, in verse 41, it says this, And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and they wept with one another, David weeping the most. Their relationship would never be the same and they knew it. I mean, really, they would would not spend hardly any time from this point on together. And they wept and they wept. Why would David weep the most? He's losing the most. I mean, think about it. He cannot go back home. He has lost his wife. He has lost his mentor, the man he leans on, the one who anointed him, the one giving the promises that he could hold on to. He has now lost his very best friend. And now he runs, and he is a fugitive. And he goes to a place called Nob, where the priests are, all the priests there. It's where the tabernacle would have been. It's all the worship would have taken place. And he goes there and the priests actually help him by giving him the bread. Every every week, the 12 loaves on the table of showbread would be taken off and replaced with new ones. They were supposed to be eaten by the priests. But there was an allowance made for life and death. And so they gave those loaves to David because he had no provision. And so they helped him. They prayed for him. They gave him the loaves of bread and they gave him a weapon, the the sword of Goliath, actually. And so the sad part is, and we're going to see this a little bit later, but he goes there and after he leaves, there had been an Edomite spy there watching all this, who later on tells Saul about it. And Saul sends this spy and eventually goes to Nob. And not only does he kill 85 priests, all the priests, this guy goes back and kills their entire family. Genocide wipes them out. And all of it was because they helped David. So David has lost his home, his wife, has lost his mentor, the guy he could go lean on for spiritual guidance, the prophet Samuel. He's lost his very best friend, more like a brother. He has lost his whole spiritual community. And now the last part you're going to see is he is going to lose his self-respect a little bit. I don't even know what chapter I'm in. Are you keeping up with me, Taylor? Okay, now look at verse 10. Okay, David flees to Gath. Okay, and David, see how uh, this is fast. Okay, because we're going to get to 2 Samuel when we get back. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. By the way, quiz, who was from Gath? He's a really big dude. Goliath. Goliath was from Gath. So this is Philistine territory. Okay. And the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? See what I'm talking about? This was the number one hit in the land. Everybody heard it, even the Philistines. Saul has killed his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. What has happened is David is a fugitive. Think of the movie. Basically, what he did is he went into a thriving metropolis of a city, enemy territory, where nobody would look for him. He has on his black hood. He's walking the streets, hoping not to be seen. He gets spotted. Shocker. They take him to the king, right? And they're asking, isn't this David, the one who killed our champion? So in verse 13, it says, well, verse 12 says, and David took these words to heart and was very afraid. So he changed his behavior before him and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the door of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Are you hearing that? All right. He acts like a lunatic. He acts like he's lost his mind. Well, think about it. He is a man of war. He's been fighting. They think he's he's cracked. He's lost his marbles. Like what in the world? So Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? That you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? <laughs> he's saying y'all, really? Do I not have enough crazies around me that you need to bring one more? Like what threat is he? he's he's spitting on himself like he, no, I maybe that was David, but look at the shape he's in now. Can you imagine one minute I am telling you about David, who is going in the name of the Lord to face Goliath. And literally in the next all he's had is success. Everything's great. It's awesome. He doesn't do anything and not succeed. And then all of a sudden, in a moment, because of what is going on inside the rage and the envy and the jealousy of Saul, in one moment, his life changes and he loses everything. Have you ever been in that situation or known anyone in that situation where life was easy, 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 success, 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 success. And then all of a sudden you hit a wall. And from that moment on, you're like, oh my gosh, loss, 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 loss. He lost his home, his wife, he lost his mentor, he lost his best friend, he lost his whole spiritual community. And now he's basically lost his self-respect because in order to survive, he's not being a warrior He's acting like he's crazy so that he can get out. And then you look at 1 Samuel 22. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became a commander over them And there were with him about 400 men. I'm not going to get through because of our rainy day. I'm a week behind, so that's just the way it's going to be. But I want you to know, think about that. He ends up in a cave. He is alone in a cave. And if you want to know how he feels, read Psalm 142, because he wrote it in that cave. And the part that gets me the most is what he says. He goes, in Psalms 142, it says, Not one person cares for my soul. God, please deliver me. His family came. And I would like to tell you, I think they came to support him. But knowing his family, I don't know about that. When Samuel came to anoint David, his father didn't even think of him not one time. He had to be asked, do you have another son? Right, And then when we met, when we saw the relationship between Eliab, the older brother, and David, how did that go? Not too great. But I will say this, sometimes in, in a trauma or in bad situations, sometimes families stick together, right? Because I can tell you this, my two kids can fight like you have never seen. One can walk by and just irritate the other, and they're in a fight before you know it. And they can say the meanest things to one another, but I'm going to tell you what. If any other person gets after one of those, the other one will tear you up like a junkyard dog. Have you ever experienced that? They're like, "Uh uh-uh, don't matter. So maybe, but here's what I think happened. They're having to come to this cave. Because if King Saul is trying to kill David, who do you think he's going to go after also to get to David? The family. The family. And so they too have now lost their homes and their privileges because of what has happened with David. And we see that David sends his parents somewhere to be safe. But it's interesting how all the malcontents came to him. And this is going to be where he builds an army. And so I am telling you, I don't know about you, but I don't know if you've ever been to a place where you feel like God is stripping away just stripping away, like, Lord, what else? What else are you going to strip away? Just when you think you can't possibly take another thing, right? One more thing happens, and you just see constant, and eventually sometimes you just feel like you're alone in a cave, and you're like, does any single person care for my soul? Lord, deliver me. And isn't it interesting that when we're there, other people start to come our way. We're going to look at that because I'm going to tell you, he is such a picture of Jesus right there because Jesus came for the sinners. Let me read you a song that I love to end, and then we'll talk about this when we get back. It says, we all started on the outside, the outside looking in. That is where grace begins. We were hungry, we were thirsty with nothing left to give. Oh, the shape that we were in. Just when all hope seemed lost, love opened the door for us. He said, come to the table. Come join the sinners who have been redeemed. Take your place beside the Savior. Now sit down and be set free. Come to the table. Come meet this motley crew of misfits, these liars and these thieves. There's no one unwelcome here, no So that sin and shame that you brought with you, just leave it at the door and let mercy draw you near. Just come to the table. To the thief, to the doubter, to the hero and the coward, to the prisoner and the soldier, to the young, to the older, all who hunger, all who thirst, all the last, all the first, all the paupers and princes, all who fail, you've been forgiven, all who dream, all who suffer, all who loved and lost another, all the chained, all the free, All who follow, all who lead, anyone who's been let down, all the lost, you have been found, all who've been labeled right or wrong, everyone who hears this song, come, come to the table. All the malcontents came to King David. What a picture of the Christ, the king that would come a thousand years later when he would come and they would all be drawn to him. And David is going to take these malcontents and turn them into the mighty fighting men of David that were renowned. And look what Jesus did through a motley crew of people in building the church. And so we're going to see how this progresses. And um, we got a three-week three break, right? So January 7th, we will be back here at night, and um, I will get you through this and start into 2 Samuel. All right, what's your homework? How about finishing First Samuel, right? Read it out. How about going back over your notes through the next three weeks and start paying attention to maybe things you wrote down and the things you would say, oh, that was so good. I loved what she said right there. Well, did you? Because have you pondered it at all? Because how often do we hear it and we think, oh, that is so good, but we don't spend any time there. One thing we've talked about a lot is inspecting what's going on inside of us. Why are we reacting the way we are reacting? What are your fears? Getting to know yourself. Do some of that. Journal, look for those things. Notice things about you. Look at your behaviors and don't be judgmental. Be an observer. Okay, this is how I'm feeling. Why am I feeling this way? What is going on? And just be an observer of your own life and see if you can figure out your patterns. Because this this semester, we've talked a lot about the patterns of Israel, what they typically do. And we all have our patterns. We all have our go-to reactions, how we respond to things. And the first part of changing them is what? You got to recognize them. So do some journaling over the holidays um, and, and all of our downtime. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for tonight. Lord, I thank you for this time that we can walk through this amazing story of David, although it's just a piece of it. But God, the beauty is this. David ended up in the cave and he ran and had to face a lot of things in the wilderness. But the fact is, although he shared his feelings and he was real with you and he poured it out, the fact is he was never alone for not one moment. Oh, he felt it. Just like you did, Jesus, when you said, My Father, why have you forsaken me? You felt the separation that sin caused. The Trinity cannot be broken, but you felt it. And so, God, I pray that, especially in the holidays, we can feel so alone at times. It is the most beautiful season when we think about Emmanuel, God coming down and literally making a covenant with us, taking off his royalty, putting on flesh and dying on the cross for us. It's beautiful, but Lord, sometimes we feel alone. And so God, I pray that you would be ever present in this holiday, that we would keep our eyes on you, focused on you, not be distracted. Um, And God, I pray that you would do some great work in our hearts over this holiday. Bring us back together. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit It'sMaryShannon.com.